Whether he was slashing his way through the jungles of Central America, riding his Norton 500cc motorbike across continents, fighting for freedom, or preaching the gospel of socialism, Che Guevara had no idea he'd eventually end up on t-shirts, mostly worn by spoiled white kids in America. He would become a capitalist brand icon for the enemy, and he'd be buried without his hands. Things didn't go the way Che had planned. We've touched on a lot of parts of the world through the course of blind history, all four seasons up to now. The one place that's really only got a little bit of representation is South America. And we return to South America today and, and to the Caribbean when we discuss a guy who most people know the face of, even if they know nothing about him. That is Che Guevara. Why? Because his face is on any number of T-shirts and coffee mugs and pretty much any kind of paraphernalia you can find. He's well known as a liberator and a Marxist revolutionary, but we'll find out a little bit more about him today. So, Anthony Medera and I, your co-hosts for Blind History, are here to give you yet another introduction into the story of someone who I think has had an enormous impact on the on the 20th century, even if he didn't actually end up conquering quite as much territory as people like to think he did. Anthony Medera is the uh, the big boss of Taylor Blinds and Shutters. They are the people who bring you blind history. And today we're looking at a man whose life ended with the blinds closed um, and, and whose life began with the blinds wide open. I mean, he was born as almost an aristocrat in, in Argentina, and he grew up to be this guerrilla leader, this military theorist. He was a major figure in the Cuban Revolution, and he's become ubiquitous as a countercultural symbol in all the world. So, Ant, what's your overall take of Che Guevara before we go into his biog? Yeah, so I knew about him growing up, as as you mentioned. I think most of us did. Um, but when I started digging in depth, I mean, I found him very, very interesting. And what he did is he stuck to his ideologies and um, to such an extent that he scared off even the likes of Fidel Castro. You know, he was so staunch in what he believed in. And um, you can't fault him for that. So he was born Ernesto Guevara, and um, he was born in 1928 in Rosario, Argentina, eldest of five children. They were a middle-class family, but they had money, which in South America at that point was pretty much equivalent to being upper class anywhere else. And uh, he was actually born Ernesto, but they started calling him Che pretty early on because of his restless nature. And his father was the first one to remark on this. He also had a little bit of asthma, which plagued him throughout life. He played rugby, interestingly enough, Ant. Did you see that? Yes, I did see that. He was a distinguished athlete. He swam, played rugby. He graduated with honors. So clearly he was, he was hardworking and he loved sport as well. So yeah, well-rounded, I suppose. But I think his family and his friends were left-leaning in terms of their political views. So he got a lot of that in his teens. Certainly from his mother, who made him read uh, all the works of Sartre and Kafka and, you know, people like that. So she was a big influence on him. And Karl Marx came into his library early on. But he was an educated guy. He was certainly intelligent. He impressed uh, lots of his friends, who were sometimes much older than him, with his knowledge of politics. And he eventually wanted to become a, a medical student, which he did end up doing. And, and, you know, studying medicine, you can't be, uh, you can't be slow and stupid there. You have to be pretty sharp. And Che was that, if nothing else. Just prior to that, Gareth, before he graduated, he joined a group opposing the government of Juan Peron. And we, we had Eva Peron on Blind History 3. 
So this was in 1942, and in 1946, that's really where she came to light in government. But that's interesting. There's a small little overlap. And then when he did go to medical school, he halted his studies to go on his, his very famous bike trip. Yeah, so he this is this is quite exciting because he had a, a bike called Ponderosa, right? Correct. And he took Ponderosa through pretty much all of South America. I mean, this is really a big adventure. And remember, this is the 1940s, roughly. And he went through Machu Picchu in the Andes. He went to the very south of Chile. He went up to Venezuela, Panama. Um, it was really an extraordinary trip. And during that motorcycle trip of his, he wrote the Motorcycle Diaries. You know, he kept a, a very good journal almost throughout his entire life, you know, detailing his thoughts on you know, poverty and, and the state of humanity. And he ended up working in a leper colony for a while, which was interesting because I think that probably had more of a, of an impact on him and on his philosophy and on his ideology of helping the poor and raising people out of extreme poverty and deprivation and liberation became the main purpose of his life from that point on. That was his big turning point. I think he always wanted to do what he can for the poor and the people that were, were, downtrodden and and this was highlighted with the lepers nobody wanted to touch them but what he noticed was they were very strong together they were self-contained and they thrived on their own while being ostracized by the outside world so that really that struck a chord with him ultimately his his bike trip took him to guatemala and that was really where he set out on a mission to try and, and begin the liberation movement, which he envisioned would happen for all of South America. But Guatemala had just recently been taken over by Arbenz, who was the dictator there. He was a military man. Um, and in fact, most of South America, let's be honest, at that stage was, was run by military hunters, you know, by generals who had basically pretended to liberate these countries, but in effect had taken them over as dictators. And uh, this this Arbenz was supposedly a democratically elected official, and he'd started some land reform and some other things. But uh, Che thought that this was not good enough. I think that what happened was the CIA-backed um, leftist government actually came in and overthrew him. And that's where he came in and joined the resistance in Guatemala. And that's actually where he met his wife as well, funny enough. But I think that was critical at the time. The Just prior to that, the self-proclaimed dictator, I suppose, the military dictator, he was looking towards liberating, taking farms, land reform, et cetera, et cetera, um, for the poorer people. And then he was overthrown. And I think that's the burning desire that came also from Che was was the hatred for for United States. Oh, absolutely. It was, it was probably at that time that he decided that the United States as an imperialist power were the most evil people in the world. And, and he dedicated himself to fighting not only the United States as an imperial power, but capitalism in general. He said, you know, it reduced people to a state of perpetual slavery and he was not a fan. It has to be said at this point that much of South and Central America was actually owned by American companies. And this didn't do much to endear them to the local population because often they would just buy up these properties or just seize them from local people. And they wouldn't necessarily even grow things there. And then the people just outside of these properties would be starving. That's exactly what happened. And that's what they tried to achieve in Guatemala was in the, in the underground fight was to change that. And the fight went to an extent where they, where they attacked one of the large United States farming group that owned massive amounts of land. And I think that's where the CIA started to figure out who is this guy. 
they certainly got him onto their radar. Yeah. Now, you mentioned you mentioned his wife. I mean, listen, the guy was a political animal from beginning to end because even his honeymoon, they went to Chichen Itza, which is the the famous Mayan pyramid complex in in Mexico. That was their honeymoon. It was a political statement, and he was planning to go and work as a doctor. And at this point, obviously, his revolutionary credentials had started to shine through. So he decided to make friends with a couple of people who we've also become very familiar with, the Castro brothers, Raul, who he met first, who's still in charge of Cuba as it is now, and his brother, Fidel, who ultimately would become the revolutionary leader that eventually overthrew Batista and took over Cuba. And the two became fast friends, although that friendship became frayed later on, and we'll get to that. Yeah, they all met in Mexico, which seemed to be a great place for all the revolutionaries at the time, because <laughs> Shea was there and and Raúl was there. But Raúl was also um, he was also operating in underground in Guatemala, so he had to bail. And the same applied actually. Shea hid in the Argentinian embassy in Guatemala, and then they let him go to Mexico. And then his wife joined him later, or his girlfriend at the time joined him later on in Mexico. So I think in this po- at this point in his life, Che really had become a bit of a rallying cry for some of the people in Central and South America. And, and he had started the rallying cry, rather, for people in South and Central America. And it was starting to become obvious that the best place to strike wasn't Guatemala, wasn't Mexico, but was instead Cuba. And of course, the Castro brothers were helpful in giving him some understanding of the terrain and the territory and the political goings-on of Cuba. So they decided they were going to invade, and they got on what they call a yacht, but it was really, it was like an old leaky cabin cruiser. It was called the Granma, yeah. and <laughs> and they set off for Cuba in 1956. And they pretty much and they got lost. <laughs> yeah, they got lost, and they were all seasick because none of them were sailors. And and as soon as they landed, as I think pretty much all of them got killed or executed upon capture. I think only 22 of them survived and found each other afterwards. Correct. And there's a famous story about that. This is where he really became a revolutionary because, like you said, there were just a few of them left upon landing. And now they were going to head into the mountains. So he quickly went back to get his medical equipment. And while the Baptists' forces were chasing them, and he, and he saw his medical box and he saw an ammunition box, and then he ended up picking the ammunition box up and running back with it instead of the medical box. Yeah, it was it was interesting. There's all those pictures of him at that time, like on a mule, uh, you know, making his way through the mountains of Cuba. But that choice was the choice that he says changed his life. And obviously, picking up the ammo box, he realized like this this was his future. Correct. What you rightly said was he was going to be a doctor, and then he thought, look, in the underground, he can be a medic, you know, supporting the troops. But when he was trained by Castro and the crew and hard training in the mountains, they said, shoot, this guy's a, he was one of the best guerrillas. So he really became one of the true frontline fighters for Castro's team. Yeah, Castro made him a commandant fairly early on, and he was also the guy who helped launch their radio station, which was obviously a big part of it, Radio Rebelde. Rebel Radio, um, that broadcast straight to the Cuban people. He set up uh, shops and he, he set up um, all kinds of, of facilities inside of their movement that would enable them to be more than just a, a bunch of random guerrilla fighters. And slowly but surely, they started to win over the people and they won over a province and a, a mountainous region in, in the, the far west of Cuba. And, and slowly but surely, they started to gather momentum 
and ultimately managed to cut Cuba in half. And I think it happens so often, Gareth. You know, the passion was with them. And many, many times in battles, it was two to one or even 10 to one. But they were so passionate about what they believed in that, that they managed to overcome these forces that were much larger than them. Yeah, he was also a very charismatic guy. There's no doubt. I mean, all, all of those pictures that are now so iconic show this man in the prime of his life. You know, he was a good looking guy. He had this long hair. He wore a beret. He was always, you know, armed with some kind of, uh, of weapon. And I think for many people, he was, he was just such a hero, a folk hero more than he was any kind of ideological or military hero at that stage. But ultimately in the Battle of Santa Clara, that was the one where they actually ended up taking over and, and winning. It became the final decisive military victory of the revolution. And their eventual victory, despite being outnumbered, as you say, 10 to 1, remains in the view of some observers, one of the most remarkable battles in human history. So, of course, from that point on, they started to build a new Cuba. And it turns out, as often happens with these things, that liberators are not always the best governors. And uh, the Castros were very much uh, entrenched and they protected their power and they started to develop a few rifts in the relationship between Che Guevara and Fidel Castro. And Che Guevara, while he was the brains of the business, really, because he was the only one with any kind of university education, who'd read a lot, who had an ideological basis and a philosophical basis for his ideas, um, he was slowly edged out and he started to feel like he was almost unnecessary there. But in the beginning, they did give him free reign. I mean, he, and he did, this is what sort of tarnished his reputation by many, that he ordered the killing of many, many people in the prisons. They say around 140 odd, which many people say, and then, yeah, he was just a murderer. But just after that, the United States obviously said, hang on, you know, now we've got a communist country right on our doorstep. And Shea went all around the world. And I think that the point you raised about the rift, they sort of felt that, he was very militant and it was better that he was traveling. So he went all around the world and he actually ended up in, in the Soviet Union. And he, he was fundamental in organizing trade relations. So yeah. Cuba would give sugarcane to, to the Soviets and, and in turn, they'd give armaments and fuel. And um, this really started the whole story around the Bay of Pigs and the Cuban Missile Crisis that plagued the, the Kennedy administration in the United States. The Bay of Pigs was a real big part of raising awareness of Shea because he actually personally sent a message to John Kennedy to say thank you very much for the Bay of Pigs because it's just made us so much stronger. So I'm personally thanking you for that. <laughs> Sarcastically. Yeah. He ended up also going to North Korea, a place which very few people visited at that stage. But he was regaled as a hero in some of these countries. Yugoslavia, he met with Tito. Um, he went to the Gaza Strip and also obviously in, in Africa where, you know, his reputation continues to be a source of inspiration for liberation movements and for left of center governments. So it's interesting that he, he managed to see a lot of the world, which at that time wasn't a, an easy thing to do if you were a, <laughs> you know, a military warlord or a, or a, or a terrorist in inverted commas as the United States had labeled him. But also he was a proper revolutionary. I think in the end he wanted to spread his ideology and communism in, in as many places as he could. So, you know, Cuba wasn't going to hold him for long. No. He decided to renounce his honorary Cuban citizenship and he went off to the Congo. So he spent quite a bit of time in Africa. He was trying to help with the ongoing conflict in the Congo. And um, it wasn't very successful. I think that there were many people 
who had an interest in the Congo at the time. The, the Americans were very interested. It was basically a proxy war for the, the Cold War, which was ongoing at that stage. But um, Che spent a, a fair amount of time in the Congo and didn't manage to achieve very much. He wanted to export the revolution, you know, across the rest of Africa, and it didn't really work. Yeah, I think he was frustrated because he couldn't get the execution right. He, he just felt that that the team he built up, he had Cubans with him, his loyal Cubans that came with him, I think they were about 100. But the rest, he couldn't really get them into a proper unit to, to make a difference in, in the Congo. So eventually he gapped it there as well and went off to South America again, his home continent, and he headed straight for Bolivia, where he hoped also to instill interest in a, a an independence movement, effectively. And he made a, a big speech on International Workers' Day and decided that Bolivia was the best place to launch this new revolution. And he just, he had absolute hell in terms of, of military lackluster performance and failure in the mountains of Bolivia. And he dealt with quite a lot. He thought he was just going to be dealing with the Bolivian military. But actually, the people of Bolivia weren't terribly interested in revolution either. Just a few years earlier, he'd been in Colombia and Peru, and he'd found that the the local native Indian population were completely disinterested in revolution. Um, so he had an uphill battle in every sense of the word. There's a lot that shows the character of a man. So first of all, this can only happen in the 60s. I mean, he came in disguise into Bolivia. He put glasses on. He created a paunch. And then, rightly so, I mean, they got absolutely beaten up. And his girlfriend uh, at the time, she got shot. And she was in terrible pain. They weren't sure if it was a girlfriend, but they believed. There were some rumors that she was carrying his child at some point, et cetera, et cetera. And where they feel that, that they were involved was that he, he decided, no, he needs to go and find um, help for her because she was really in trouble. And he walked great distances, and that's when he got captured, actually going to look for medical help for her. Right, and there, there were informants, obviously, as well in the area because they were hunting him down. I mean, there were people in the, in the Bolivian government who were, who were asking you know, quite a large bounty for for bringing in Guevara. So he was tied up. He was taken to a schoolhouse in La Higuera. And he asked to speak to the teacher. Her name was Julia Cortez. And she stated later that she found him to be an agreeable-looking man with a soft and ironic glance. And his gaze was unbearable, piercing, and tranquil. So during their short conversation, he pointed out to her that the schoolhouse was in a very poor condition <laughs> and said, this is no, no place for children to learn. And meanwhile, the government officials are driving Mercedes cars, and that is what we're fighting against. Of course, it was all wasted words because he was set to be executed. Uh, Barrientos, who was the president of Bolivia, ordered him to be killed. And the next day, he was taken out into the courtyard, and he said to the guy who was going to shoot him, you may as well just kill me, you coward. I'm just a man. That's incredible. And the Bolivians were very worried, so they cut his hands off so that they had proof that they'd actually killed him, and then they got rid of the body because they were so scared of the pull that he had. And then they also wanted to show that he was actually killed in battle rather than executed the way they actually did execute him. That's right. They wanted to show that he had been killed in a, in a shootout so that they didn't look like cowards who just shot him in captivity. And actually, they tied his body to the landing skids of a helicopter and flew it to a nearby town. And then they took photographs of him lying on a concrete slab in the laundry room. It's, it's, you know, these pictures are very sad and quite grisly. And uh, as you say, they, they hid the corpse 
they considered it uh, to be like a, a relic that needed to be put away. Otherwise, it would have drawn all kinds of martyr tourists and, and people who believed that he he was a, a man who'd had extraordinary powers and, and you know commanded people through his charisma. And they didn't want it to become a place of, of homage. But in the end, it did. The schoolhouse and all of those areas, the, the people got almost like a pilgrimage still. I think in 2017 was 50 years. And they had a massive commemoration. And the people in that town have said that's what keeps their town going. That's what drives the, the economy in their town. Well, they also managed to find his diary, which, as I said earlier, was something he, he really kept a very dedicated, disciplined collection of poetry, short stories, thoughts, ideas, ideologies. And he'd written this all down. And his diary is, is now famous. I mean, it's, it's kind of been published over and over again. It tells the story of the fights that he was involved in, the guerrilla warfare that they undertook. Um, and it was translated a number of times. Um, in, in fact, it's probably one of the most well-read books in South America. Sure. And, what, and in the end, it became a legendary political figure, you know, and they equated to rebellion, revolution, socialism. Um, the young people definitely, you know, there's T-shirts all over the place. The young people feel, you know, it's, we want to rebel against the organized society and they're all wearing these T-shirts. Yeah, and I suppose his legacy is, is one of, you know, this, this incredibly charismatic human being, this, this, this really um, heroic image, uh, but a man who even Nelson Mandela referred to as an inspiration for every person who loves freedom. I mean, that's what our own former president called him. Yeah, that's correct. But he stuck very much to, to what he believed in. Nobody could change what he believed in. Well, there he is, Che Guevara, uh, a guy who became probably greater in death than he ever was in life. And there still continue to be places and buildings and streets named after him all over the world. Um, his legacy continues on the T-shirts of so many students who have no idea of what he stood for, but who think that he looks like a cool image that they that makes them feel countercultural. <laughs> Blind History is brought to you by Taylor Blinds and Shutters. All the episodes are available on the cliffcentral.com website and app, as well as Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. There's an interesting story about Che Guevara before we leave him. Um, obviously, he was executed and, and they hid the body. Nobody really knew where it was. And there began a massive search for his remains. It lasted more than a year. And in 1997, not that long ago, a team of Cuban geologists and forensic anthropologists discovered the remnants of seven bodies in two mass graves, including one guy without hands, which was one of the things they wrote down when they killed him and they showed the hands as a way of proving he was dead. So they got a little bit excited, but they excavated the teeth and they perfectly matched a plaster mold of his teeth that was made in Cuba just prior to his Congolese expedition. That obviously helped to make the whole thing official. And the clincher was that the anthropologist inspected inside a hidden pocket of a blue jacket that was dug up next to the handless cadaver and found a small bag of pipe tobacco. So they said that had to be the proof that this was obviously Che Guevara. <laughs>